Welcome to another episode from Time Passages. My name's Chris. My name's Beth. And today we're going to be talking about... The Treaty of Versailles. So let's examine first who was the architects behind this treaty that was imposed on the Germans. Beth, do you just want to kind of give an overview about who the big three are and exactly what countries they come from? Okay, so uh, the big three is uh, Woodrow Wilson, and he is the president of the USA at this time. We've got um, George Clemenceau, from, he's the prime minister of France, and then we've got David Lord George, who is the prime minister of Britain. Many students listening to this episode might have already looked at the Treaty of Versailles at GCSE or possibly even earlier, so might already have a background to this, but it's good ground to cover nonetheless. So we're going to look at the agendas behind each of these individuals and what do they exactly want from Germany? How should Germany be treated? Let's take a look at George Clemenceau. With Clemenceau, he seems to be the harshest of the free men. And in many ways, you can understand this justification. His was the only country of the free that was attacked, invaded by the Germans. The only country that saw ground and land devastated by war. So to him, he really wanted to see Germany pay. He wanted to make sure that he could bleed Germany dry to the point that they would never be a threat ever again. So Clemenceau appears as the very harshest of the free men. On the other side, you've got Woodrow Wilson, who's the president of the USA, like I said, and he's more of the idealist of the three. So he's got a strong religious background and he's kind of wants um, everybody to get on again and he wants to reduce armaments within the world. He wants self-determination, so people to um, decide the fate of their own nation and form their own government. He wants to create a League of Nations, which is like the world's policeman for international police. Um, and he'd actually opposed USA's entry to the First World War anyway. Um, so he drew up the 14 points oh, yeah, um, yeah. in hoping of uh, creating more of a, a just world. And I guess that kind of brings in our final character, which is David Lord George. Would you say he kind of sits in the middle of the two? Comments on the one hand and... Definitely. So he's definitely got some of the feelings of um, of France because Britain have been heavily affected with casualties. Although mm-hmm. the war's not been fought on any uh, British land, we've suffered a lot of casualties here, and he's not happy about that. But at the same time, he he's willing to have a bit of compromise and see kind of where Wilson's coming from. And I guess trade also comes in it as well, Massively. where Clemenceau wanted to bleed uh, Germany dry as a reason because he didn't want it as a threat there's less of that impetus coming from David Lord George. He wants to see a trading partner growing there uh, as, as we go into the 1920s and 1930s. Definitely. And he's he's also worried about communism. He's got his eye on what's going on in Russia and he wants to keep that at bay. And he thinks if he's going to uh, bleed Germany dry like um, Clemenceau, it's, it could lead to this communism mm, uprising. Mm. So we've just looked at who was behind the treaty and what their aims were. We now kind of need to look at what actually happened and what came out of the treaty itself. One of the classic ways that uh, students learn that at GCSE, and it's no harm bringing it in again at A-level, is the uh, acronym of LAM, L-A-M-B. Because that kind of sums up in its totality what exactly was in the Treaty of Versailles. L stands for... Land. A stands for... Arms. M stands for money and B stands for blame. So we're going to take apart each of those in turn and kind of work out what was in the treaty. 
land can be effectively summed up in one percentage, 13%. This was the amount of land that was lost uh, territory for Germany uh, out of the Treaty of Versailles. So for like a specific um, example that you can give is that of Alsace-Lorraine. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a piece of land that was taken from France um, when Germany invaded in 1871 in um, a previous war it was mainly french speaking it had some rich iron deposits and they had to give that back as part of the treaty for side give it back to france the french uh, border with germany was also uh, an issue for the uh, orchestrators of the treaty and we get the uh, rhineland this was an area of land that was to be governed by germany but no fortifications were allowed here and no military forces were to be garrisoned within the area. So that's Alsace-Lorraine. You've got the Rhineland. You've also got the Saar area, oh, yeah, um, yeah. which is placed under the control of the League of Nations for 15 years. But it has that um, element of administration by France. It's very rich industrial area, but it is mainly German. So uh, you've given back Alsace-Lorraine, but now they've also lost the Saar and the Rhineland. You've also got the port of Danzig, or the city of Danzig, uh, which was made a free city under the League of Nations. They've also, Germany, are forbidden from um, reunification with um, Austria, also known as an Anschluss. Um, they were forbidden from joining to make an even stronger uh, Germany, even though uh, the empires of Germany and Austria have been independent. You've also got, as well, the German colonies. They have been given mandates. That's basically under the control of countries supervised by the League of Nations. For example, you've got Britain in Germany, East Africa. Africa. So those sort of territories have been taken away from Germany. You've also got in the east and in the north uh, plebiscites, which are basically a vote uh, taken by the uh, inhabitants of that area. And they decide whether they remain part of Germany or whether they leave and join a different country. You just need to think about it. It's like a referendum just think about last year with brexit that's the kind of thing that they're doing they're deciding whether they're going to be part of something or not so you've got for instance western opera silesia you've got the northern and southern parts of schleswig holstein Uh, those vote to either remain part of germany or to go their separate ways and join denmark poland and other areas so along with 13 percent of the land Uh, being given away to other nations we also see 12% that's roughly 6.5 million inhabitants of old Germany now parts of different countries so once someone could be German are now Polish technically or French or Danish thinking about that like on a human level you go to bed one night as a German citizen and you wake up the next morning and you're suddenly a, a Polish citizen or I would I don't think I could cope with that with something that I would really hate and that has got to be something that the German people felt this disillusionment that is building and you can see why many of the people that were handed this treaty by the victorious powers uh, were, were, were against it because for this very reason it sees people's nationality stripped and replaced with something that is quite alien to them the next letter in that acronym A stands for army or armament and this is 
um, was relating to Germany having to be forced to get rid of conscription, which is the compulsory enlistment of soldiers within um, the army. And I guess conscription goes way, way back. That used to be the predominant thing at the start of World War One was that Germany was really the only conscripted army. So they've had a real change here from going a very militaristic conscripted based army to one where conscription is totally outstripped. Exactly. And the army is reduced to only 100,000, which is... If you think about the amount that died in the mm. war, which is a, you know two million, that is a significant reduction there. It's a paltry sum, but you can see the justification why they reduced it to that number. On the one hand, it's a force; you're allowed an army, yeah, definitely. but it's an army that can't do anything. So for France, it keeps them happy, it keeps Clemenceau happy, knowing that actually your old enemy may have an army but it is very limited exactly and they're they're not allowed any tanks within that they're not allowed any big guns and these were devastating within the first world war so again that's keeping um france happy that they've not got these um weapons that were so devastating to them the as we've said the rhineland was demilitarized so they're not allowed any army in there they're allowed no military aircraft so they can do nothing from the air and then they're limited to six battleships six cruisers 12 destroyers and 12 uh, torpedo boats they've got no submarines which as we were in uh, if you go back to the first podcast they were so devastating so it's reducing them again and it's just getting the army right right down so they're kind of minimal and mm. um, yeah and they're sort of a, a figure they're there but they're of no and one of the great good. stories that i love that comes from this is that uh, rather than hand over these ships these submarines that they had to give to the victorious powers uh, they decided to scuttle them at scarpa flow yeah. in, in 1919 as a way to say you know up yours we're not we're not handing over our weapons just so you can use them that next letter in the acronym m m for money or reparations. I know it doesn't uh, quite yeah, fit. Doesn't yeah. quite fit with our acronym, but it. If you want to go for either, it, it's okay. So this was France's big thing for Germany. Their their major thing that they were not going to let go. It's a fixed sum that the Germany has to pay back to the Allies. Six point six billion. That's in it. Figures. Insane amount. Now, if you think about that in money terms, now if you're going back then. That's an incredible sum to pay back. I think recently it was said in the press that if they carried on paying it, it would be this year that they would finally come to the conclusion of that payment. The reparation payments would also extend in another dimension, uh, payment in kind. So coal, timber and other resources were taken from territories within Germany and transported to France in Britain, as I say, as a payment in kind. Uh, there was also uh, the Inter-Allied Reparations Commission, the IARC, um, who fixed the reparation sums for Germany to go to the Allies. Which then leads us into the final letter of the acronym, B, B for blame. Now this pretty much was the biggest bugbear, wasn't it, yeah. for those that had to sign the treaty. It was kind of the weapon uh, that gave Hitler the ammunition to criticise the Treaty of Versailles. It's otherwise known as the War Guilt Clause of 231. And essentially it said the following. From Article 231 of the uh, Treaty of Versailles, 
So the Allied governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied governments and their peoples have been subjected as a result of the war imposed by the aggression of Germany and her allies. And taken from what Beth's read there are the two key points. It was the aggression of Germany, the loss and damage to which the Allied governments and their people have been subjected to. It was essentially saying that the whole war was caused by Germany and all the devastation and destruction had to be repaid by Germany. In many ways this demonstrates why so many people within Germany hated the treaty. It was a humiliation that was thrusted upon them uh, to sign these terms. The fact that they had to give away territory, had to accept guilt, had to pay reparations, had to be disarmed. Yes, a loser in any war or conflict expects to lose something, but these seem grand beyond belief. So the last thing that we're going to um, look at in this podcast is the significance of the Treaty of Versailles. And this goes well beyond the debate of whether it was fair or not. And it's looking at the impact it then has on the Weimar Republic and the future of Germany. One of the first things that is quite significant from the Treaty of Versailles is the economic consequences of reparations and they were undoubtedly a real concern for Germany. One key thinker, uh, economist shall I say, uh, feared that in 1919 the reparations would fundamentally weaken the economy of Germany and this would then have consequences for the whole of Europe. Now we'll look at these in later podcasts but you could argue that the reparation payments that came out of the Treaty of Versailles led through to hyperinflation in 1923 and then in 1929 led to the... You've got the Wall Street crash, so that's then taking it not from even Europe, it's then going to on a global scale. But some would say that the Republic's economic problems cannot be blamed on reparations alone. There are other aspects and as historians we need to be careful that we pick one decisive event that sort of answers everything else that follows. Germany actually received more in loans under later plans than it did uh, that it would pay in reparations. So we need to be careful when we talk about that. So if we look at um, the significance of the treaty on um, Germany politically, mm-hmm. it's it's not really possible to see kind of what it did because it's got this kind of both sides to it because if you look at Germany in 1919 you could argue it was in a stronger position than in 1914 so you've got uh, the Russian the Austrian Hungary and Turkey empires they've gone and they've created a power vacuum yeah it's kind of a new situation in Europe isn't it yeah and they can't be filled at this point because no one's kind of economic um, economically and politically strong enough to fill them we've got a new uh, Soviet Russia and that is in no position to fill these vacuums at this pre- uh, this point and um, in like this situation like cautious uh, diplomacy like might have led to um, Germany actually having a greater influence over Europe and that is certainly not what the treaty wanted um, on another level the treaty could be then considered for um, the weakness of the Weimar Republic. Mm. As we've spoken about, the German public are, absolutely hated the, the Treaty of Versailles. And the whole war was based on a nationalistic, um, patriotic German opinion. And they were deeply shocked by by defeat. So this is then having the Treaty of Versailles come in and being so harsh, I suppose, on them 
this is then leading to the weakness of, of Weimar. And I guess it also comes in, we can tie in here, the stab in the back myth. Yeah. You, you've got, to a degree, the rise of nationalism. Not to the extent that Hitler comes in the following day, but the idea that it gives him ammunition to say, look, this is what's wrong with Germany. Germany needs to change. Start listening to me. And you see the growth of nationalism come out of the Treaty of Versailles. It's the start of a ripple. So if you think about a ripple in the water, it only takes one little drop and it exactly. gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is the kind of that start of that ripple. It's quite interesting when we look at Stresman, who was the um, foreign minister from 1923, uh, who basically said that actually we should use the Treaty of Versailles and work with it. It shouldn't be something like Hitler would say that should be ripped up and torn to shreds. Actually, by working with the Western Allies, we can improve the situation for Germany. So actually, as Beth said a moment ago, it's not clear-cut politically how much of a doomed nature the Treaty of Versailles had for the Weimar Republic. It's one that is still open to debate. There is one aspect that cannot be ignored, and that's the inopportune time of the birth of the Weimar Republic and also the emergence of the Treaty of Versailles. In many ways, contemporaries and people at the time would have seen the two go hand in hand. Any weakness of the Weimar Republic will be inextricably linked with the Treaty of Versailles. It was like their Weimar Republic's Achilles heel over yes, the years for yes. opponents. It was always something that could be brought up, dragged out every time um, to exploit any weakness. and they Because I guess at the end of the day, they were the ones that signed it. Exactly. And they've, um, got, they've got the blame for the First World War. And you've, you've got that um, public opinion that they really don't like it because it was shocking to them. So it is, it's going to be something that's brought up every time that there's a slight chink in the armour of the Weimar Republic. It's the ammunition to the nationalists. They can use it, as you say, again and again. So let's uh, recap then what we've looked at in this episode as we come to the conclusion. Uh, we've looked at the war aims of the Allies, that's Lord George, Wilson and Clemenceau. And we've looked at kind of their agenda and what they felt should happen to Germany. Some are extreme, like Clemenceau, yeah. others... I suppose Wilson is the other side of extreme, yep, yep. and then you've kind of got Lord George who's in there... Seeing both sides of the argument, exactly. We've also looked at the terms, that famous acronym that we've employed here. Of lambs, you've got land, L, arms, A, money, M, and blame, B. And we've tried at the end to avoid looking at uh, why, too much why people hated the treaty, but more what is the significance of Versailles for the future of Germany. Obviously we've tied in the birth of the Weimar Republic and how that's inextricably linked does have an effect but we've also looked at how the stab in the back myth is also tied in as well the collapse of empires politically is that is that not an issue and um, that sort of encapsulates the Treaty of Versailles from Def that perspective definitely so thank you for listening and hope to catch the next episode <laughs>